So shortly after the 9-11 attack, as New York City was recovering, the famous Brooklyn Tabernacle Church was holding funerals for four of its members who lost their lives in the Twin Towers. And one of the funerals was for a police officer. Mayor Rudy Giuliani was present at this funeral and was asked by the family to share a few words. And what he said was both powerful and, I believe, spot on. Look up here on the screen. He said, you know, people, I've learned something through all of this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading into it, do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save? I wonder what percentage of whites are up there. How many Jews are up there? Let's see, are these people making $400,000 a year or $24,000 or? He said, no, when you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses out first? Not exactly. And then he said rather profoundly, I confess that I haven't always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to. He wants us to value every human life the way that he does. And I think Giuliani latched on to something there that, as we all know, would become a rallying cry for the city of New York, if not for a short time for our entire nation. You know, folks, before 9-11, plenty of pundits, I don't know if you caught this, were calling America soft. They were saying that we weren't the same nation that we were during World War I or World War II, that we had it very easy nowadays in our comfort-based, entitlement-ridden society, and that we are now a weak or soft nation. And yet, as many people wrote after 9-11, they noticed how wrong the pundits were. Because on 9-11, our nation rallied, our nation pulled together, our nation focused, and probably most touching, at least to me, our nation showed unity in response to that tragic day, unity that was not as evident on 9-10, but became very evident on 9-11 and the days, weeks, months, even years afterward. And folks, as I have thought about that over the years, it hit me very early on that there's a powerful lesson for you and me in that, and for us as a church. In short, it goes like this, that if a nation of some 300 million people can put aside differences and rally in such a way that displays true heartfelt unity, then certainly the Christian church can. Amen? Certainly we can. And yet here's the deal. Not just in response to a tragedy do we show unity as a church. No, we show unity every single day. As you're going to see in a second here, it's what churches do. It's what we do as followers of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Jesus had an opportunity toward the end of his stay on this earth to pray one last prayer, one final and important thing for his followers and for everybody that would come to believe and trust in him down through the ages as a result of his death and resurrection. And it's fascinating, when you look closely at this prayer, which we're going to look at in just a second, you're going to notice that he didn't pray for happiness or joy. He didn't pray for vocational security. He didn't pray for health and healing. He didn't even pray for spiritual intimacy. All good things that God is about and that we pray for regularly. No, he prayed for something that most of us would not have guessed. He prayed for something that doesn't reach quite the top five in our daily prayer request, but it was number one in his book. And so notice with me what he prayed. 
in what has become known as Jesus' high priestly prayer as recorded in John chapter 17. The prayer he prayed just moments before he entered the Garden of Gethsemane where the last few days of his life would begin. Look up here on the screen. John 17, verses 20 to 23. Jesus says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, meaning the disciples, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. Now here it is. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me and did love them even as you did love me. Folks, it's hard to miss the gist of what's going on here, right? It's unity. I mean, that's what Jesus prayed for, that we would be one just as the Father and the Son, and we might include the Holy Spirit, are one. And the question that you and I need to wrestle with as we take an honest look at that prayer there is, does that surprise us? I mean, if we were the Son of God, and by the way, you're not, but if we were the Son of God, and we had one last prayer to make for all the believers that would come after the disciples, what would you pray for for them? It's a little bit surprising to me that the number one prayer that Jesus had for them was unity. I don't think that's what most of us would have expected. And yet this idea of unity is exactly what Jesus prayed for. It's exactly what God wants for us. In fact, he wants it so much that it made it into his son's one sole request before he went to the cross. And so we got to ask the question this morning, what's the big deal with unity? I mean, why is there such this big idea on oneness for those who follow Jesus? Or to put it more in line with 9-11, what did Giuliani latch on to during the aftermath of 9-11 that made him so sensitive to this thing called unity? What might the church learn from what happened 10 years ago in our nation? Three things I want to share with you in our time remaining this morning. Three things that another prayer, very similar to Jesus's, teach us about the why and the what of unity. And so here is the first thing, and this is our starting point, and that is that unity is absolutely central to God's will for his followers. Did you know that? It's true. I mean, some of us don't have unity as really a very high thing on our priority list. I'm going to hopefully change you in the next 10 minutes if that's possible. Unity is absolutely central for God's will when it comes to God's will for his followers. And so if you don't believe me, look at what another prayer in the New Testament, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, say about this idea of unity. This is rich. Here's what it says. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get the context right here. Uh, in this entire book, Paul is wrapping up the entire book of Romans here, and so far in the book of Romans, he has walked them through details such as creation, Sin, salvation, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, even such topics as election and free will. And he's now getting down to the short strokes of trying to wrap everything up that this book talks about. And in a sense, he basically says, oh yeah, one more thing, one really important thing. Be of the same mind. 
Be of one accord with one another. Have one voice together in tandem with each other. Seek and glorify God and by all means stay unified. You know, I want you to focus on that little phrase there in verse 5, be of the same mind with one another. Do you see that there? I, I highlighted it for you on the screen there because I want us to focus on that right now. It says, be of the same mind. Uh, this phrase, which the NIV translates, a spirit of unity, simply means to be unanimous, to think the same thing. And we know from the context of Romans as a whole that it can't mean to all have the same opinions about everything. Because right in chapter 14, uh, right before this, he talks about the fact that you're going to have differing opinions when it comes to certain gray area issues. And he ch challenges us how to respond to that. So we know it can't mean that we all think the same on every opinion issue. And so what most theologians point out is what it simply means here is that we all need to have the same general perspective or the same purpose when it comes to what we're rallying around. That you and I need to be unified when it comes to our overall worldview and our overall direction as followers of Jesus Christ. And building on this, Paul says, no matter what, above all else, stay unified, stay together as one. And the logic here, folks, is simple yet profound. And you're all familiar with the logic because we were taught this since we were little guys and gals. Simply that if we're ever going to accomplish something in this world, if we're ever going to accomplish something in the civic realm or in the societal realm or in the family realm or in the business realm, and now Paul talking here about the church realm, the only way you're ever going to do that is if you stay focused on your core purpose, remain as one, stay unified, and when you do that, you can experience the power of all. That's the logic of what Paul is talking about here. It's football season right now. I'm a big football fan. Some of you know that. So I was watching, I don't know if you guys saw the Notre Dame-Michigan game yesterday, but man, it's just a great game. If you mixed it, like try to find TiVo, or if you missed it, find TiVo or something, because it was just a, a nail-biter of a game. But you know, in, in football, on a sports team, they have all different kinds of players. And when you think about it, all the players might not even agree on a specific play or the strategy that's called by the coach. And they might not even all like each other on a personal level. But nevertheless, they know that if they don't work and play together, then they're never going to win. It's never going to happen. And, and every play executed needs all of them together as a team to participate. And every role matters, big or small, whether cheering on the sidelines or handling the ball, whether getting water for a tired player or throwing a key defensive block, it all counts and it takes all. And without all participating, even if they don't all agree, they're not going to win. We all know that. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was watching the Notre Dame game. Can you imagine if the play got called in? Peter, can you imagine if the play got called in by, by a coach and the quarterback gave the play to the players and all of a sudden the left and right tackle were to say, we don't want to do that. I don't agree with that call. I don't think that's a play we should be doing. So you know what? I think I'm going to do something different than all the rest of you are going to do. What would happen with that play? We all know what would happen. It would fall apart. The defensive guys would get right through because the tackles went this way. They'd get a tackle probably four or five yards for a loss, if lucky, and they would not be a winning team. And yes, I'm going to challenge you in a minute. We in the church do that all the time. But we get one or two players or one or two groups of players say, I don't think I want to go that direction. I don't think I want to do that. Even though the elders might be unified, the majority of the congregation unified, we say, I don't want to do that. 
And because we live in a consumer-oriented, democratic society, we think that's all good and wonderful. And yet God looks at that, and I'm here to tell you today, Romans 15 affirms this, that when we function like that as a church, our power is weakened. We have diminished unity to the point that we no longer are the, the body of Christ, the, the functional body of Christ that he wants us to be. The church takes all of us together unified to make it work. And if we don't, if we let petty and sideshow issues disunify us, then the power is lost and we become weak, anemic, and quite frankly, a losing team. This is why unity is so important to us. It's why it's so central to God's heart for His church. It's why it made Jesus' number one prayer request in the high priestly prayer. In short, I love how Billy Graham once said it. This is great. Look up here on the screen. He said, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. When they separate, they die out. You know, Billy Graham always had a very simple way of putting things. And I think he's spot on in this moment here. And let me give you another illustration. How many of you have ever heard of the three tenors? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the three tenors. I knew that the first service would come through. By third service, by tonight, I'm going to be getting that deer in the headlights look. Amen? The three tenors. Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo, and Luciano Pavarotti, many of you know as the three tenors. And they have an amazing story because these three were amazing tenor singers, each who independently became superstars in the 70s and the 80s in the opera realm because of their gifted and trained voices. Really three of the best. And about 20 years ago, somebody had an amazing idea to bring these three voices together and to do a concert. And as many of you know, it became an instant hit. And since that time, the three tenors have toured all over the world, beginning here in the States in 1994, doing concerts that have just impressed millions. They did their first concert in Los Angeles in 1994 in the United States. And during this event, the Atlantic Monthly covered the event and at one point, they were trying to press the issue of the previous competitiveness that these tenors had before they came together. I mean, for years, these men were rivals in the realm of opera singing, and I'm told that that's a cutthroat world. Get it? Anyways, cutthroat world. That did, I won't use that in the other services. Anyways, and now they were trying to... That was really dry, wasn't it? I thought of that yesterday. I thought, oh, no one's going to get that, and they shouldn't. I, I, for years, they had sung independently and really had a competitive nature with, the, with each other, and now they were trying to sing as a team. And the Atlantic Monthly was trying to find out how that was working. Listen to the response of Placido Domingo to the Atlantic Monthly. Look up here on the screen. Give me a click here. He said, you have to put all of your concentration into opening your heart to the music. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. I love that last line. Let me repeat it. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. And folks, he's right. We all know this from other areas of life. When you're focused on a common purpose and a common task and you stay unified and focused, it very much limits the amount of energy and attention that you have for rivalry with other people on your team. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, this would be an amazing quote for the church to latch on to, wouldn't it? You can't be rivals when you're together making music. 
Because as we're going to see in a second here under point two, our music is Jesus Christ and his gospel. Amen? That the music that you and I sing to a lost world each and every day is Jesus Christ and his gospel that he gave us 2,000 years ago. And I think the point is you can't be rivals with each other when you're truly singing his tune. I mean, that's what happened on 9-11 10 years ago. I mean, really, did anybody see New York City as all that unified of a city before 9-11? They didn't. Let's just be honest about that. Nobody would have put up New York City as the poster child of unity 10 years ago or before 10 years ago. And yet on that day, that city came together. On that day, much of our nation came together. And there was unity felt and expressed and people put aside rivalries and we focused on protecting our nation and honoring those who have died and supporting those who were first responders. And it was a beautiful thing to do. And though, what, four or five years later, and then we're bickering once again about partisan politics and wars and things like that, I mean, you know, the disunity was felt once again for a brief time. And it's instructive for the church. There was unity felt among our nation. And the church needs to latch onto that and say we need to be living that each moment of each day. Why does God place such a high premium on unity and oneness? So much so that it made it into his son's number one prayer request for the future because unity is core to the power of all, core to being used by God as light in a dark world. It's how you and I stay together and accomplish our mission and while so doing, show a lost world the love of Jesus. Now, I want you to listen very close. Music is what bound together the three tenors, right? I mean, that was their common bond, the glue, if you will, that gave them unity to sing together for, what, 15, 20 years. And what we learn from this is that every form of unity in our world needs to have some form of rallying point, some central point of focus, right? So if you're a coach of a sport team, you're going to use as the focus of unity winning or the name of the game, the kind of game that you're playing. If you're a business, Jeff Goble, the chairman of our elders, who did the lead into the 9-11 video today, is a businessman. In his business, they have a common purpose, a common goal. They make certain widgets, and those widgets are what they unify around so that they can reach their goals. Every organization, every team, has some form of glue that acts as the boundaries of their unity. And so is the church, as the hope of the world, here is our rallying point, and it's point number two on your outline, and that is that the glue of our unity is simply Jesus Christ. And I've chosen every word there very carefully. The glue, what holds you and I together in unity, is nothing more and nothing less. It's simply Jesus Christ. So what am I talking about? Look again at verse 5 of Romans 15, and I want us now to latch on to a, another phrase that's an all-important phrase that we skipped over earlier. Let me remind us of what verse 5 says. It says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, now here it is, according to Christ Jesus. That, that's the glue of our unity, according to Christ Jesus. You know, only I would laugh at things like this. That's why my kids call me a dork. But in my study this week, I realized that in this exact same verse that's talking about unity, it's ironic and comical that the commentators argue about what it means when it says according to Christ Jesus. Isn't that kind of funny? 
That, that here it is, a pastor talking about unity. And for 2,000 years, Bible experts have been disunified on what it means when it says according to Christ Jesus. Some argue that that means according to the will of Christ, what he would want for us, the things that we do. Others argue that it's the example of Christ while he's set on this earth, that that's our unity. While still some argue that no, it's more the spirit of Jesus Christ living in a dwelling among us, that subjective nebulous spirit kind of thing. And yet as I was mulling through all of that, all of a sudden I read John Stott's commentary on Romans. John Stott was a great Anglican, an evangelical, a wonderful, humble man of God, and a wonderful Bible teacher. The reason I told you all that, I just went to be with the Lord about a month ago. At the ripe old age of 90, John Stott is now no, no longer with us, but with the Lord, but his commentary is still with us, and I was reading it, and listen to what he says that kind of cuts through all of the disunity on this. He says, this seems to indicate that the person of Jesus Christ himself is the focus of our unity. And that therefore, the more we agree with him and about him, the more we will agree with one another. And that really hit me, folks. What Dowd is saying is that the person of Jesus Christ is our unity. And so when you see it that way, then this passage would be saying that our unity in, as Christians is found with anyone who also believes in this person of Jesus Christ, that he is the incarnate Son of God, God come in the flesh, come to forgive us of our sins and bring us back into a vital relationship with him. That's what John 1 and John 3 spell out for us. And that by trusting him and him alone, one has eternal life and now becomes a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. And so don't miss, what Stott is doing here is that he's saying that our unity is more bound up in a who and only by extension a what. And I think that's a great challenge to the church. You see, we tend to want to have our unity, as I'm going to show you in a minute here, bound up in a what. What are the things that unify us? Are they lifestyle issues, theological issues, political issues, church issues, personality issues? We're going to go through all those in just a minute. Those are the what's that many of us use for the glue of our unity. And though all those things are good and right in and of themselves, if we're reading Romans 15 right, it's saying that our unity is bound up in a who? In a person of Jesus Christ. And though there is an extension of what there, because as we'll see in a second here, we need to define who that person is that he is the incarnate Son of God, that he is God come in the flesh, that he did come for a specific person. I mean, we have to define who this Jesus is that we are following. At the same time, it's a who we are following, not a what. You all have heard me say this before, that, that it drives me nuts and kind of batty when Christians define their Christian testimony as an it, right? Happened again to me this week. I said, somebody will tell me your story, your journey as a Christian, and said, well, you know, I, I grew up with it, and then I fell away from it, and then I kind of ran from it, and you know, now I've come back to it, and it's really helping me. And I sit there and want to say, and I'm never this rude with people, because I'm talking on kindness next week, and so, you know, I, but I want to say in that moment, I want to say, what's it? It? Last I looked, you're following a who? You're following a person. You have a relationship with the risen Jesus Christ who loves you and journeys with you every day. It's a who you're following, not an it. Do you see the point there? I, I love how E. Stanley Jones, a great Methodist missionary, said the same thing here. Look up on the screen. This is so cool. He says, talk about what you believe and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe in 
and you have unity. Our unity is in the person of Jesus Christ as declared to us in his word, the Bible. And all I can say, folks, is that when one hears the call to unity and oneness through Jesus' prayer and Paul's reminder here, and when one realizes then that our unity is bound up in Jesus Christ, you begin to see, begin to see both how and why we've made such a mess of this today. You begin to see how and why in local churches as well as among local churches, we have made so many other things, sideshow things, non-essential things, as our rallying point, as our glue of unity. And though they might be important things to us, and I'll even grant you important things to God, they're not the rallying point that the Bible talks about, and hence, we don't have the unity that he wants us to have. In other words, the church today, sadly speaking, functions like this. If others do not share our particular view in something, then it's going to affect our unity, and I'm not going to hang around them as much. And I might not even call them my own. And in many respects, in so doing, we have made the bar for unity way too high by adding a lot of non-essential, albeit important, elements to our parameters for unity, higher than even the fact that we all claim the same Jesus and follow him together. What am I talking about? I I told you earlier I was going to get a little bit practical with you here, and I want to be very careful how I say these things because, you know, my last church, I had about 1,000 people. In this church, there's 5,000 people. And in my last church, I could get away with not being as clear and nobody would notice. In this church, when I'm not clear, there are some of you who notice and send me emails. And part of that is, too, is that Scottsdale Bible is very theologically sophisticated. We're, we're tied to the seminary. Many of you have gone to classes. And so, you, you know, you're very discerning in things. So I want to try to be very, very clear. So if I look at my notes here a little bit, don't be too surprised. I just want to make sure that I, I, I'm going with what I'm thinking. Uh, one, lifestyle issues. I think that we have made lifestyle issues a rallying point for unity to the point that it breaks God's heart. What am I talking about? Well, the old list was drinking, dancing, and going to shows. That was the list of your parents. And people, even those who were so-called Christians that did those things, I would not have unity with. But today, isn't it interesting? We are free in Christ when it comes to those things now, but we've added our own list of things. So I hear people still argue about homeschooling versus private education versus public schooling. And isn't it interesting that homeschooling people tend to hang around with each other and public people, young life people, tend to hang around with each other and then private school people, the SCA people, tend to hang around with each other. And you've got to say, what are we saying to the world in that? Where's our unity found? Or how about political persuasions? We tend to have strong political persuasions. We tend to favor parties that might more coincide with our biblical worldview. But what do you do with somebody else that might favor another party because part of what they do favors part of their biblical worldview? Do we have unity with them? Are we really willing to break down that unity if we share the same Jesus? Views on war. We just came through a couple of wars. We're still in one right now in Afghanistan. Do we all understand that the history of the Christian church, there have been Christians who said, I do not categorically believe in war. They're called the Quakers. And then there's others who say, have at it. It's good against evil. We're good, and we're going to defeat evil. And yet, historically, we're all part of the same church. We're all part of the same Jesus. But sometimes you wouldn't know that, listening to the way that some Christians talk. Please see, folks, we have allowed lifestyle issues to divide us. And again, I want to be really clear on this. It is good for you and me to have lifestyle issues. 
In fact, if your faith doesn't lead to a particular lifestyle, there's something wrong with your Christianity. Let me be really clear on that. I mean, Kim and I have values for us as a couple, values for us as a family on things that we will do and things that we will not do. And those things are very precious to us. And there are things that we've taught our kids, but they're not things that I would drag into the church saying that those have to be the focus of our unity. Do we all understand that? There's a difference between that and those of us and the unity that we find in Jesus Christ. And then give me another click here. We have certain non-salvific theological issues that still divide the church today. This one's huge. You know, right now there's about 400,000 churches in the United States, and there's over 1,000 different Christian denominations and variations. I mean, ever since the Reformation, which in one sense was such a blessed and good thing, we have just exploded when it comes to divergence on how churches function and even whether they will have fellowship with each other. It's better now, but when I first became a Christian back in the 80s, Charismatics and Pentecostals did not have fellowship with people from Dallas Seminary. I mean, we just didn't have fellowship together. When I first became a Christian, I had to choose a side. I mean, I was brand new. I didn't know anything about Jesus, Paul, God, the Bible. And yet people were saying, I hope you're not a charismatic. hope you haven't done that. You know, and I'm like, what's this about? Uh, last year, or maybe it was earlier this year, I was teaching on Daniel. Kathy, you remember that? And, and I, and I kind of let loose on the congregation that I take a post-tribulational view of the rapture. Uh, which, so some of you are going, what are you talking about? Well, you can go back and listen to the CD, and I can tell you what I was talking about. But, but not in most people's mind, but in a few people's mind, that was akin to denying the resurrection of Jesus for them. I, I mean, whether you're pre, mid, or post-trib, and again, that's an important issue. And, and I think how you, you, you deal with that and how you come down on that, it, it takes a lot of biblical, rigorous work, and I think we all should go through it. But we can still have unity in the midst of all of that. In fact, I'll say it stronger. We better have unity in the midst of all of that, or I don't think God is smiling on us on that area. I, I could add to this free will and predestination, infant baptism versus adult baptism, I mean, things that our church has taken a stand on, and yet though we might have a teaching position on those things, we've also chosen to allow a lot of diversity within our body here. We've chosen to say that our rallying point, our unity, is in Jesus Christ. Are you starting to see? Again, we've allowed theological issues, non-salvific ones, that the Bible talks about, and let's be honest, more specifically, our particular interpretation of what the Bible says to divide us. And sadly speaking, we have made them markers for unity. As some of you have noticed, I'm good friends with Tom Schrader. One of the reasons I'm such a good friend of Schrader is because we've gone through the mill in our discussions. Tom's another pastor here in the community um, on a lot of these issues, and we've been able to find unity on them. I remember one of the first times I was golfing with Tom, I was told that he was a five-point Calvinist and that he talked very unashamedly about his Calvinism and would teach it regularly at Priority Living, his, his, his ministry. And uh, so as we were teeing off there on the first hole, I, I said to him at one point, because I tend to share his Calvinistic views, but I said to him at one point, I said, you do know, Tom, that John Wesley is going to be in heaven, don't you? And, and he knew exactly what I meant by that. I mean, John Wesley was one of the great Wesleyan ministers, Wesleyan, they named after him, Methodist ministers that came out of the Reformation, and yet John Wesley didn't share one point of Schrader's Calvinism. Not one. Not total depravity, not unconditional election, not irresistible grace, not limited atonement, not the perseverance of the saints. Didn't share one of them. 
And yet what I wanted to hear from Tom is, is that, yeah, as much as Wesley would disagree with those things, he was a pretty godly man. And his brother wrote like 3,000 hymns, many of them in which we sing today. And that he's probably going to be in heaven. In fact, if truth be known, he's probably going to have a closer place in heaven than either Tom or I. And Tom was able to admit that. And I was like, amen. That's our boundary line for unity. Now, again, I want you to hear me right. I, I, I tend to have a teaching position on what I teach from the Bible. It tends to be much more reformed than not. Uh, we're going to teach out of our statement of faith and celebration of 50 years uh, of ministry next year, next winter. I'm going to go through our statement of faith and teach it. And I'm going to teach it from an ashamedly, unashamedly, uh, Calvinistic reform perspective. And yet, having said that, please know that my boundary line for unity is more broad than that. My boundary line for unity incorporates anyone who has an evangelical, historical, conservative, orthodox view of Jesus Christ. That's the unity that we have as followers of Him. How about church issues as a third area? Churches today are split over church government, whether you're elder-led, bishop-led, or congregation-led. Churches are split over whether or not they should build a building or not. I don't even know if you've noticed, but churches have also argued and split over music. I know it's hard to believe. It really is. I mean, it's hard to believe that we're going to get to heaven someday and actually have to look at God in the face and say, I just didn't like the music. I just didn't like it. I hope the music is better here in heaven, God, because I didn't like it at my church. In fact, I went to 10 different churches before I found the right music. Honestly, think about that, folks. We have to look at God and say that someday. And I sit there and go, really? Our, our, our unity is found in music. I hope not. But we've allowed so many personal and corporate issues to divide us, and I'm convinced it breaks God's heart. Our rallying point is the truth and love of His Son, and whether we embrace His Son by faith or not. And then lastly, and I'm not going to harp on this one, but personality issues. Churches rally about, about affinities, likes and dislikes, past hurts and arguments. They rally around certain programs that they're doing in the present, whether you're a missional church or an attractional church. In fact, churches even get very competitive among each other. I don't know if you know that or not, but, I, but I'll hear somebody regularly say, you know, I, told, I found somebody the other day that was going to Highlands, somebody was going to East Valley, and I told them they should come to SBC. I'm like, why'd you tell them that? I'm like, well, SBC's a better church. I go, really? Since when did our unity start rallying around whether you're an SBC person or a Highland person or an East Valley person? Uh, last I looked, our unity is around Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love the fact that many of you love your church, and I hope you're not going anywhere, especially after this sermon. <laughs> but the reality is, is that our unity, now, now hear me closely, our unity is with Highlands, amen? Our unity is with East Valley, amen? Our, our unity is with Camelback, amen? I mean, I mean, our unity is found with so many other churches in this community, I love the story told by Brian Bueller, pastor of North Shore Alliance Church in Vancouver. Listen to this. This is a great story. He says, one day an Anglican priest came to our church to talk with me and pray for me, and I wasn't in. He asked the secretary if he could go into our sanctuary and pray for me and for our church. She said, by all means. She led him in, and as he went in and knelt down by our pulpit, she watched him pray for 20 minutes for me and our church. Later, I discovered that his prayer had been that we, in the Missionary and Alliance denomination at North Shore Church, would not lose the vision of A.B. Simpson, our founder. He says, I laughed when I heard him pray that for the first, when I heard him pray that for the first time. I thought to myself, you're an Anglican, 
and you're more alliance than we are. When I told my congregation about what the rector had done, their hearts were warmed. Now listen, and he says, and they began to love Anglicans. Now when our people drive by St. Simon's church, they bless the congregation at St. Simon's. That's unity, folks. Recognizing another person that shares the same Jesus that you do and saying, though we might have gotten there in slightly different ways, though we have slightly different stories, and though we hold to slightly different views on some of the non-essential issues, if you share Jesus with me, then you're one of me. Now, let me make a very quick comment here because I want us to be very clear on this. There is another side to this, and that is that notice I've been very clear to say an evangelical, historical, orthodox view of Jesus is what unites us. And today you have to be very discerning about that. I mean, today, you know one of those popular phrases is among Americans? It's, it's this phrase, I'm a person of faith. I hear that all the time. I'm a person of faith. Are you a person of faith? And we somehow assume that if a person is a person of faith, then they must share the same view of God and Jesus and the Bible that we do. And the reality is that's not true. A few years back, I was on a plane. I was reading uh, one of those uh, magazines that they put on there, and they quoted a, a pastor, a pastor in Palm Beach County who said this. Now, this is a pastor, mind you. He said, instead of believing in God, whatever that means, I like to say that I'm a person of faith. Faith understood as a basic trust in the integrity of reality and the worthwhileness of life. I remember reading that, and if it hadn't come from a pastor, it wouldn't have caught me. You know, Anderson Cooper, I get it. But I mean, a pastor? And I'm thinking to myself, what has this come to? I mean, what rallying point do we have there? We don't even believe in God. We believe in the integrity of reality, whatever that is. And you and I have to be discerning there, even within, sadly speaking, church circles. The reality is, is that our unity is on a right understanding of Jesus. I love how Paul says it, according to Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to our unity, discernment is needed. But again, I love the great phrase coined by Richard Baxter, the great Puritan who was quoting Rupert Maldinus when he said this, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I think that's the way we need to function. God calls us to unity, and our unity is found in His Son, Jesus Christ. So unity is central for God's people. Our unity is found in our shared faith in Christ. And then one final thing, and with this we're done. The key to unity, now now listen, is uncompromising acceptance of those not like you. That's how churches who are displaying unity today function. And by the way, it's exactly what Paul challenged his audience to in this prayer we're looking at today. Look at verse 7. He says, after outlining unity, after outlining where unity is found, he says this. He says, wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. I love the logic of that passage. He's saying our unity is absolutely central to the will of God. Our unity is found in Jesus Christ. So what do you guys do with that? Accept one another. And he even says, love, Paul was brutal. He even says, and by the way, if you're having trouble accepting one another, then try this on for size. God has accepted you. And he knows. He knows everything about you. He knows all about those secrets and those failures and those fears. He knows that you're not what you present yourself as to others around you. And yet he still accepts you. And he loves you and he stays with you. 
And so once you latch on to that in a humble moment, apply that to your horizontal relationships and accept those around you that aren't like you to share Jesus with you. And folks, with the exception of a very few extreme and very rare cases in the New Testament, this is what the New Testament outlines. The constant pursuit of the church toward each other to accept one another, just as God and Christ has accepted us. So what do you and I do with this? Ten years ago, lots of people made commitments out of 9-11. Give me a click here. One of the great commitments that came out of 9-11 was the last person to be rescued. Her name was Janelle Guzman McMillan. She was on the, I think it was the 65th floor. She made it down to about the 20th floor in the stairwell when the tower collapsed. And for 27 hours, her head was pinned between two concrete slabs. Her leg was wrapped around uh, one of those metal pillars. And she thought she was going to die. She was the last one rescued out of the only, what, 20 or 30 people that were rescued from the rubble. She was the last one. And she's written about her story that while she was under the rubble there, she prayed over and over and over and over again a prayer that some of you might pray, and that was, Oh God, I've not been doing too well up to this point in my life. I've not been taking you all that seriously, even though I was taught as a little girl to do that. And if somehow you save me, my life will be yours. That's what she prayed. And 27 hours later, she was saved. Since that time, she's gone to church on a regular basis. She's done her best to get right with Jesus. She serves every week at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in their hotline for people who are in trouble. She's a phone counselor. You would love it, Noni. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, you know, that's probably just one of many stories that came out of 9-11 in which people made changes to their lives. Amen? I mean, when something like that happens to our country, it rocks you. And they made changes to the course of their lives. And so maybe on the 10-year anniversary, as we've talked about unity as a church, as we're doing an entire series to get us more grace-based as a church, maybe it's time for some of us to make changes. Maybe it's time for some of us to start embracing others that share the same Jesus we do that we've been reticent to embrace up to this point. Maybe it's time that we make commitments as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that on this day, in which we're remembering, reflecting, and certainly latching on to the hope of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, our nation has actually taught us a few things about unity. And so, Lord, as we reflect 10 years ago, and some of us even feel the unity that we felt then, I pray, Lord, that we might be able to transfer that in this moment today to our church and to our worldview of how we think about other believers around us. God, for some of us, we've allowed petty differences even though they're important to us, uh, to keep us from having true fellowship with another brother or sister in Christ. May that change today. May out of the rubble, Lord, of our lives, we make a commitment to be unified with those who share the same Jesus we do. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it. It's how we know about you. We teach it here regularly because we follow you and we love you. So I pray, God, now as we go, that we might have been built up, strengthened, we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. God bless you and have a great day.